if you claim to be a Christian and yet you're living a life that is characterized by sin that you refuse to acknowledge, you refuse to repent of, you refuse to turn from, God says, you're a liar. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue in Matthew chapter 5 with part 2 of Tom's series titled Radical Truthfulness. In the greatest sermon that Jesus ever taught, the Sermon on the Mount, he insisted that his followers pursue truthfulness at all times in their speech. This means we as believers should never lie or be dishonest. We ought to reflect the life of our Lord. Now that means more than just external conformity to Jesus' words. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that you must obey His words from the heart, including your speech. In today's program, you'll learn several common ways that the temptation to untruthfulness can manifest itself in the world in which you live today. Let's join our teacher right now on The Word Unleashed. Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. Again, the context is vows to the Lord. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if, if you decide not to vow, it wouldn't be sin in you. You don't have to make a vow. But, verse 23, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. Now again, the large emphasis in these texts is whatever goes out of your lips is to be truth. In the context, it's being spoken to God, and therefore you're to do it. But the the emphasis is on truthfulness. But again, the scribes distorted what this passage was emphasizing. Let me read it as as they would have read it. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. What I want you to see is that what those texts actually taught was that God's people must not take oaths lightly. They must not use God's name in a light or frivolous way. They must not break their vows. But above all, they are to be utterly truthful in what comes out of their mouths. Now that you understand the distorted emphasis of the scribes and Pharisees, go back to Matthew 5 and look at it again. And now you'll pick up what they're saying. In the first half of verse 33, they're saying, don't perjure yourself. In the second half of verse 33, they say, and you shall fulfill, you shall pay your vows to the Lord. Now the problem with their emphasis was this. They had actually become convinced that a lie between people was not that important to God. Now, if God's name were invoked, then suddenly his dignity and his honor were at stake. William Hendrickson puts it like this. In their understanding, if the affirmation which a man made was a lie, or if the promise was never even meant to be kept, that was not so bad as long as he had not sworn to the Lord. 
this was the mindset. You know, when we think, again, of the scribes and Pharisees, we tend to think of, of the kinds of legalists we have in our day where they are fastidious in every way, but not so. When it came to divorce, as we have seen the last several weeks, when it comes to truthfulness, they played fast and loose with the truth and excused it. Now, there was a third way the scribes misinterpreted the Old Testament command about truthfulness, not only making it primarily about perjury or vows made to God, but thirdly, they limited the requirements to truthfulness to only those human oaths and promises that were made in God's name. So they said it did pertain to things between humans, but only and only if you invoke God's name. And that's what you have, the examples in verses 34 to 36. Notice you have oaths by heaven, verse 35, oaths by the earth, verse 36, oaths by your head. Understand that the examples Jesus cites here, and we're going to look at them in more detail next week, are not chosen, chosen randomly or just sort of picked out of the air. The scribes and the Pharisees actually made these kinds of fine distinctions in their teaching. In fact, there's an entire tractate of the Jewish Mishnah that's devoted to teaching about which oaths are binding, are somewhat binding, and which oaths are not binding at all, can be disregarded entirely. For example, one rabbi taught that, and I'm not making this up, if you swear by Jerusalem, you're not bound to keep your vow. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, you are bound to keep your vow. They explicitly taught that oaths made in God's name are in direct reference to something that belongs to God had to be kept. On the other hand, if in your statement you didn't mention God or any of His holy things, then that oath you were swearing to, you were not bound to keep. The Talmud expressly teaches that if you were to make an oath using the expression by heaven or by the earth, whatever promises you made would not be binding in any way. Maimonides, a 12th century Jewish rabbi, was commenting on the Talmud, which predated him by many, many centuries. And he wrote this about what it teaches about vows. Quote, If anyone swears by heaven, by the earth, by the sun, etc., even though it be the intention of the swearer under these words to swear by him who created these things. In other words, if I say I swear by heaven or I swear by earth or I swear by the sun, and what I really mean is I'm swearing by God, he says, if, if, you, if you don't use God's name, this is not an oath. End quote. So do you see the situation in the first century? John Broadus, I think, described it well when he said it this way. The Jews were remarkable for their frequent use of oaths in ordinary conversation, swearing by the temple, by the altar, by the lamb, by the dishes, by the law, by Moses, by the prophets, by the life of the rabbis, as well as the oaths here mentioned, and countless others, and reckoning such oaths to be nothing. Now, you get another picture of this in our Lord's words 
in the sermon on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Go to Matthew 23. Jesus is standing on the Temple Mount. The scribes and Pharisees are gathered around. There are perhaps hundreds of thousands of people gathered for the Passover who are standing around. And in that context, Jesus launches into the scribes and Pharisees. He tells them they are children of hell. He tells them they are snakes. They are hypocrites. But in the middle of this, he takes issue with their truthfulness. Look at verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, (laughs) oh, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, well, he's obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, oh, that's nothing. You say that it's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on the altar, well, he's obligated. You blind men, Jesus says, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus says, I'm going to have nothing to do with your equivocating schemes. And he just launches into their lack of truthfulness. This was such a common problem, by the way, this whole perspective, that when Jewish people came to faith in Christ in the first century, they continued to struggle with this. And so in the very first New Testament epistle written, James, he has to address this. In James chapter 5, verse 12, he says, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, none of us here, I don't think, are walking around swearing by earth or by heaven. We're not doing this. So what we need to do is step back And look at what really is going on here. Because what's really going on is still going on today. What exactly, or I should say why, why exactly do the Jews fill their everyday conversations with those kinds of oaths? What was really going on? They were trying to cover their lies and dishonesty. God gave the Old Testament laws about truthfulness in one's communication to limit our overwhelming tendency and temptation to lie. What the Old Testament was really teaching at its heart on this issue was that we must, as God's people, be people of our Word, be people who keep our promises. The real problem was that The scribes and Pharisees had lying, dishonest hearts. And they were trying to justify their dishonesty and their lack of truthfulness and at the same time avoid, on the one hand, legal guilt before the courts. They could appeal to this sophisticated set of regulations about vows. And on the other hand, I think they really thought they could avoid God's judgment as well. It's kind of the adult version of, well, I crossed my fingers before I said it. So I'm not really accountable for it. 
What Jesus was telling his disciples that day on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee and what he is telling us is that he, as our Lord, will not tolerate such lying and dishonesty. Those who belong to him must, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, be pursuing radical truthfulness. So let's ask the obvious question. We're not walking around swearing by the temple or by the altar. So what are we doing that's like what they were doing that our Lord was taking issue with? What are common forms that this temptation to untruthfulness takes today? Let me give you several to think about. Number one, lying. This is simply denying what we know to be true, directly contradicting what we know to be true. Now, what are some of the ways, let me give you some examples, that as Christians we can be tempted to lie, to contradict what we know to be true. Here's an example. Asking someone in your home or workplace to say you're not there because you don't want to take the call. It's one thing to say you're unavailable. That may be true. But to say, I'm not there, when you're standing right there by the person, that is a lie. Telling your teacher that you read a book that you merely skimmed. Making up some excuse to cover yourself or you might get in trouble. Making foolish promises that you have no intention of keeping. Calling in to work sick when you're not. Those are contradicting what you know to be true. And those are just a few examples. But those are the kinds of ways that our culture has taught us and our own fallenness has taught us it's okay. We're playing these games and we think God's playing along with us. Listen, Jesus demands radical truthfulness. Another way this expresses itself There are other ways, of course, that lying expresses itself in life. But another way that untruthfulness expresses itself, in addition to lying, is slander. Slander. This is lying about or exaggerating the faults of others. It may be repeating an unsubstantiated negative comment about someone. That's otherwise known as gossip. Texting or posting something that is either a deception or an outright lie about someone else intended to hurt them because of some perceived hurt they have done to you. Slander. It's a form of lying. It's a form of untruthfulness. A third expression is deception. This is really at the heart of lying, isn't it? A definition of deception would be trying to convince someone to accept as true what we know to be false. That's deception. We know it to be false. We don't want to outright deny the truth, but we want to so shape the truth as to communicate something that we know isn't true. We want that person to come to a conclusion that is contrary to the truth. That's deception. This is really at the heart of lying. John Ruskin writes, the essence of lying is in deception, not in words. A lie may be told in silence, 
by equivocation, by the accent on a syllable. And all these kinds of lies are worse and baser by many degrees than a lie plainly worded, so that no form of blinded conscience is so far sunk than that which comforts itself for having deceived because the deception was by gesture or silence instead of by words. So how do we deceive? Well, one way we deceive is by hypocrisy. We're going to get to that in in Matthew chapter 6. That's when we try to make other people think we're more spiritual than we know ourselves to be. Flattering giving someone an insincere compliment in order to get something from them, either for them to like us or because we have some other ulterior motive. Pretending to befriend someone for our own advantage. Posting something that is an exaggeration of some accomplishment. Exaggerating your past accomplishments. You've all heard the expression, the older I get, the better I was. Inflating your education or other credentials on a job application. Leading someone to believe that you agree with them by silence when in fact you disagree. Forging your parents' signature on a note to the school. Plagiarizing someone else's material intentionally misleading a parent or teacher who has asked you a direct question. It's deception. It's a lie. It's untruth. A fourth form this takes is cheating. It's lying in order to get something from someone else or for yourself. For example, here are a few examples. Misreporting your income tax on your tax return. Taking tax deductions that are not legitimate misrepresenting the quality of something you're selling to a potential buyer, misreporting the purchase price of a car to save on taxes, keeping the, the extra change that a cashier mistakenly gives you, inflating your office expense accounts records, charging personal expenses to your expense account, misrepresenting the quality of your product or its actual cost in order to make more sales, failing to actually work the hours you were paid to work. By the way, this is a huge problem. Management survey reported 80% of employees do this, and the average amount of time every week that an employee says he worked or she worked that they didn't is almost four hours a week. Working on unapproved personal projects on company time or equipment. My wife was telling me, she read an article this week, that one of the biggest users of corporations' internet bandwidth is the forwarding of humorous videos. Many of them of cats, which I don't really get, but whatever. (laughs) Cheating on a test or assignment. Those are some of the ways we cheat. A fifth way that we are characterized by untruthfulness is by false accusations. I had a friend in California who was in law enforcement. He told me that law enforcement spends more time today than ever before clearing the innocent of false charges, charges that are made out of spite and revenge and hatefulness. 
The ninth commandment says, don't bear false witness. A sixth way this expresses itself is in false profession. Claiming to be a Christian while living a life characterized by sin. We don't normally think of that as lying, but God couldn't be clearer. Look at 1 John with me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we are saying, John writes, that we have fellowship with God, in other words, we know God, we, we have a relationship with God, and yet we are walking in the darkness as a pattern of life, we are walking in sin that characterizes our lives, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look down in chapter 2, verse 4. The one who is saying, I have come to know him, I know God, and does not keep his commandments, God says, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He has added yet another sin to his list by making a false profession of something that he does not possess. If you claim to be a Christian and yet you're living a life that is characterized by sin that you refuse to acknowledge, you refuse to repent of, you refuse to turn from, God says you're a liar. And as we already saw from Revelation, there will be no liars in heaven. You know, when when I studied this passage this week, and as you've heard it this morning, this passage again does to us what all of these illustrations have done. Our Lord's teaching here about truthfulness absolutely demolishes all self-righteousness. Because there isn't one of us in this room that could stand before Him at the judgment if this is the standard. Not one of us. It drives us back to the gospel where we find forgiveness for our lying and our dishonesty. Our only hope of not being sentenced to hell just for our lying alone is found in the only person who never lied, who never slandered, who never deceived, who never cheated, who never made false accusations, and who never made a false profession of faith and trust in God that he didn't possess. And our hope is found in turning from our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone as Lord and Savior. There we find forgiveness. And the only reason we find forgiveness for our lying is that On the cross, when Jesus died, he died suffering God's just wrath against every single sin, including every single lie, every single deception, every single slander for every person who will ever believe. Listen, your only hope is to run, not walk, from your life of dishonesty and lying to Jesus Christ. Because if you die before that happens, or Christ returns before that happens, someday you will stand before God, and this will be the standard, not the sliding human scale of acceptability. For those of us who are in Christ, our Lord's teaching here is a call to radical truthfulness. Jesus says, I won't accept 
all of those games the scribes and Pharisees play. For my own, you need to be truthful because you follow one who is the truth. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of his series, Radical Truthfulness. Tom will have part three for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. In a world filled with great uncertainty, God's Word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of The Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at the Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.